0: Every time we receive this recognition, it is an opportunity to elevate the voices of healthcare workers who may not feel like they are seen or heard. And so we use every one of these opportunities to pause, take it very seriously and know who we are representing at the Dr. Warner Breed Heroes Foundation. You know, we named this foundation after Lorna because she cared deeply about her colleagues as much so as she did about her patients. But we represent healthcare workers in this foundation. We represent you if you're a healthcare professional and you're listening to this. We did this in her name, but this is for you. And so we are taking that and holding that very, very tightly and really cherish that opportunity to be your voice.
1: This is the Visible Voices Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Risa Lewis. Before we get started, here's a word about the book, Microskills.
2: Hi, I'm Dr. Adara Landry. And I'm Dr. Risa E. Lewis. We're dropping in to tell you about our new book, Microskills, Small Actions, Big Impact, that's coming in 2024, published by HarperCollins. It's for everyone, and particularly you early career professionals. This is the book we wish we had been given.
1: We believe every goal, complicated task, and healthy habit can be broken down into simple, measurable, and tiny skills that can be easily practiced and learned by removing obstacles, overcoming assumptions, and maximizing your potential at work
2: and in life. Microskills is our gift to you. It's fun and efficient. Our promise is that if you buy this book on a Friday, you will be better at your job by Monday.
1: Watch this space for more information and how to pre-order soon. Hi, listeners. Thanks for joining. And I want to start with a trigger warning. Today's topic is suicide, physician suicide, prevention, taboo, awareness, and more. You can turn the episode off at any time and come back to us or not come back to us at all. This year, 2023, Corey and Jennifer Feist are being awarded the Surgeon General Medallion Award for Health by the Surgeon General of the United States of America at the Kennedy Center. My two guests today are Corey Feist and the Chief Medical Officer of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, Dr. Stephanie Simmons. As means of background, Corey is a healthcare executive with over 20 years of experience. He's the co-founder of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. Steph is the Chief Medical Officer and a board-certified emergency medicine physician and healthcare executive. There has been an immense amount of progress since Dr. Lorna Breen died by suicide in April of 2020. On March 18th, 2022, the Doctor Lorna Breen Healthcare Provider Protection Act was signed into law by President Joe Biden. This bipartisan bill was developed to address the high rates of burnout among healthcare professionals as well as the high suicide rates among doctors. Let's get to the episode.
0: Thanks again for having me back and highlighting this really important issue. As someone who has spent a career in healthcare and a career really representing physicians and other advanced practice professionals, the issue of suicide was one that was incredibly surprising to me in the rates of suicide until it became a family crisis as well when my sister-in-law, Dr. Lorna Breen, died by suicide in April of 2020. And then what we learned is that the rates of suicide and depression among physicians are twice that of the general population. The rates of suicide among female physicians are higher than male physicians. And the data goes on and on to a point where it's at beyond a crisis level, but nobody was talking about it, or they were rarely talking about it. And so What I would say about this issue is there are a number of drivers and there's a number of solutions. And one of the most important things that we can all do is simply discuss this topic openly and create an environment where people look out for each other and themselves and understand the connection there to patient care.
2: So many physicians and other healthcare workers are suffering in silence with their own mental health journeys with their own sense of hopelessness and feeling trapped in roles and jobs that they are no longer finding satisfying. And when I think of NPSA Day and the actions that can be taken to make a difference in healthcare workers' lives and physicians' lives, it really starts with questioning the stigma and the systems that we've been trained up in, realizing that being smart and strong and tough and good at the work we do doesn't mean being perfect or superhuman or invulnerable and that by sharing and supporting with each other, we can be stronger and better than we can suffering in silence alone. Yeah.
1: Episode 19, listeners, was recorded in 2020, and Corey joined me along with three others. And actually, I think it was one of my sole episodes where I had four guests, and I said to myself, self, I think four is a little too many, because I I just couldn't give enough airtime. And nonetheless, the quality of that conversation, the importance of that conversation, obviously has stayed, and you joined again in... 2021 with Dr. Carol Bernstein, episode 58 listeners. And we're here today to speak about this topic because it's not a one and done. This is ongoing. This is a commitment. This is a lifetime commitment. And this is a commitment to culture change. Steph, you brought up stigma. And in our episode with Dr. Carol Bernstein, we talked a lot about stigma and I would love to know some data about what has changed in terms of stigma. What does that look like in terms of, say, hospital credentialing, state licensing, and just the overall environment for physicians in healthcare? Before you answer, let me just say, I'm a little skeptical. The reason I'm skeptical is... I have many physicians come on the podcast and they say, well, we encourage trainees to get help. Well, you know, we stop and we tell everybody self-care, get mental health support. And I feel like it's now at least, yeah, it's mentioned, but I think the logistics are still difficult and there still is this feeling in medicine for physicians that you can't talk about, you shouldn't get it, definitely should not report it. Anyway,
2: yeah, take it. So- There's really three forms of stigma that we need to talk about. I'd like to lay out what those are, and then maybe Corey, you can give us the update on where we are with the states and credentialing. The first is internal stigma, which is our own beliefs about what we're allowed to do, the help we're allowed to get, and who we are. That can be part of what we hear growing up, part of what our family belief structure is, and what we experience. Then there is external stigma from our profession, what we hear from our teachers, our professors, the hidden curriculum in medical school and residency about what's okay and what's not okay, what we see and hear other people saying or doing when they talk about colleagues who have had a mental health diagnosis, who have struggled with an issue at some point in their career, and frankly, how we talk about patients too. Because when we do not speak about our patients with mental health diagnoses and treatment with respect, that comes back to us and our own belief system. So that internal and external stigma is really critical. The last type of stigma is institutionalized stigma, and that is the questions and the wording and the way that we are repeatedly asked to disclose our mental health history of diagnosis and treatment in hospital credentialing forms in our state licensing forms in our malpractice insurance forms in our reimbursement setting and over and over being asked those questions creates stigma that there is somehow something wrong or less than if you have a diagnosis or of history of treatment of a mental health condition when in fact being diagnosed and treated for a mental health condition is infinitely preferable to being undiagnosed and untreated from a mental health condition. And that we don't ask these questions the same way about physical health conditions on these questionnaires. So it really indicates what I like to think of as really a 19th century conception of mental health as separate and different and stigmatized from physical health. So that's what we've primarily been focusing on, making the difference on and can show a difference on is addressing institutionalized stigma.
0: That's where we started this conversation as a foundation is institutionalized stigma. Lorna was deeply concerned she was going to lose her license to practice medicine in New York State when she obtained mental health treatment one time. And that ultimately is one of the last things she told us before she took her life. Unfortunately, She was not aware when she made that decision that New York State has some of the best licensing laws in the country and has for quite some time. So in addition to institutionalized stigma, what I would say is we absolutely need to communicate what the rules are to the workforce. Hard stop. Every physician, every nurse, every allied health professional, every clinical care member who is licensed by a state and or credentialed in a hospital deserves to know the facts about what the repercussions, if any, are for them to get mental health treatment. So one of the things that we heard from Lorna, I sheepishly admit that I was not even aware of as the general counsel of the University of Virginia Physicians Group when I was their lead lawyer. This is so hidden, as Steph said, in plain sight. So What we've done is we've developed a roadmap for the country. And as Steph said, we've made incredible progress. So the first thing we did was we developed that practical toolkit. It involves three steps. I learned in business school, you really can't do more than three things at a time. So let's do three things. The three steps are to audit questions at any level, whether those be hospital credentialing questions or licensing board questions or insurance company questions. You audit them. You take a look at them and you look at them relative to what the Americans with Disabilities Act would say would be appropriate. What it says is you can ask about current impairment. That's it. You can't ask in the last five years, have you, or have you ever in your lifetime or questions like that. Those are those questions that physicians in particular are concerned about. So then you audit the questions and you change them. We give organizations three choices. Again, three, everyone likes choice and everyone likes three, right? So we say, make your questions consistent with the Americans with Disabilities Act. Don't have any questions at all or go beyond that and ask for an attestation of well-being like the states of North Carolina and Mississippi have, who clearly connect well-being of a clinician to their safe patient care. So that's what we did. We published this toolkit in November of 2022. At that time, we also published an audit of medical licensing across the country. And at that time, we identified that 19 states were compliant with one of those three areas. And we recognize them and we created a national badge recognition program which is under our national call to action which is all in well-being first for healthcare we gave them the champions challenge badge for licensing and credentialing and between november and may of 2023 we moved the country from 19 states being awarded to 21 states and then something happened that was absolutely magical which was that when i took the stage at the federation of state medical boards annual meeting and awarded 21 states the Champions Challenge badge, as soon as I got off stage, 13 other states came to us and said, we are ready to make these changes. And so as we recognize National Physician Suicide Awareness Day this year, we have now the majority of the states in the country that are free from licensing stigma or repercussions for physicians which is incredible progress and can show you what you can do. And, and that was basically a 10-month endeavor with focus, with attention, with practical tools. We've done that. We've also been doing it in hospital systems. In that same time frame, we moved all of the hospitals in Virginia, our home state, from zero hospitals compliant with our recommendations to now over 75% of the hospitals in the Commonwealth of Virginia. To give you just a number when it comes to the national licensing number, this means that over 500,000 physicians across the country are now free from stigma or professional repercussions when it comes to their licensing. Over 500,000. And those are real numbers where we can say, you know what, this is called progress. When you focus on these issues, when you give practical tools, you can do this. And the numbers are growing and growing. They've grown to Henry Ford Health System in Steph's backyard in Detroit. They've gone to Northwell Health System in New York, the largest employer of healthcare professionals, or I think is the largest employer in the state of New York. But so we're, we're cascading this. The last thing I would say is we came together with NIOSH, which is the occupational safety arm of CDC. And on May 18th, I think it was, we launched a joint statement with NIOSH challenging all hospitals in this country to use our three-step toolkit and obtain that Champions Challenge badge. And we're seeing just... Cohorts of hospitals come to us in groups, either at by states or just large health systems and saying, help us. And I will tell you one of the things that's amazing is that we receive zero pushback to our feedback. Everyone's like, Thank you so much. We hadn't looked at these questions for years. And thank you. And they're embarrassed when they look at them. And so this is not hard. It takes focus. It takes attention. And the pendulum had swung way too far in the wrong direction. And now our healthcare workforce needs to be able to obtain safely the same mental health treatment that they prescribe to their patients.
2: It's really important to note that these questions are not evidence-based to prevent patient harm. So we occasionally will get questions about, like, aren't there laws, right, that require us to use these questions? And in some states, there is a central credentialing application which also can be changed. But there really isn't a regulatory body out there saying you need to ask about mental health. The Joint Commission has issued a statement saying, it's not us, right? And so as we're going through, we really are talking to hospitals and health systems about the origin of these questions, the rationale behind them, and the importance to their workforce of eliminating these questions.
1: Thanks for that. I was going to say that, you know, listeners may be a little confused. Like, I don't understand the logistics. I'm not a doctor. I'm not in healthcare. And to be clear, just as in most professions, you have to apply for a job. You have to apply, for example, credentials to work at a hospital. You have to get licensed and it's a state by state license. And listeners, when we apply to get a job to work in a state, there is a whole form to fill out like I'm sure you're familiar with. And in these questions, Dr. Jesse Gold was the one that said in our first episode that these questions used to be listed uh, in the section that talked about ever being convicted of a felony, being a convicted criminal, or being a pedophile. And the fact that there has been this culture change. I think one of my questions way back buried was, has anything changed? And the answer is, yeah, things have changed. And Corey, thank you for those numbers. I want to shift focus on you, Steph. You are Chief Medical Officer of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation. And this is not just professional. This is personal. I'm curious if you can share a little more with the listeners.
2: Sure. Happy to. I don't think you do this work unless it's personal on some level, honestly. Anyone who's doing it, whether it's your own story or a a friend or a family member or even a colleague, but I really started to think about and take action on professional well-being as a resident and maybe even germinate the seeds of that interest as a student. Seeing my co-students who struggled during medical school, close friends who weren't able to complete medical school, not because they weren't capable of the rigorous work or clinical load, but because they lost a parent and had, you know, reactive depression during medical school and then and they weren't able to finish or come back. In residency, I was on the five and a half year emergency medicine residency track, which you know, some people don't know exists, but it does. You do that by switching out of anesthesiology into emergency medicine and having two children while attending an academic program. So it was a wonderful experience in many ways. I had a lot of elective time because of my double internships and I developed postpartum depression with my second pregnancy, pre and postpartum depression. It was during that time that I started a Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Policy Fellowship. And I had the experience of applying for my first jobs participating in a a rigorous fellowship while raising a four-year-old and a newborn with postpartum depression. And I did not feel at that point that I had the option to get any mental health help because at that vulnerable point where you are applying for disability insurance, you are applying for your first job, you are getting your Non learner's license, you are credentialing at your first hospital. These questions were not something that I wanted or needed to be addressing in my career. I felt very deeply the injustice of that at that stage in my life, and frankly, struggled for longer and harder than I needed to if I had gotten help. And, Risa, at that point, anyone looking at me from the outside would have seen a successful, happy, emergency medicine physician doing a prestigious fellowship, kicking butt and taking names. And that's what we do.
1: (laughs) I have to say, bingo, that's what we do. And listeners might be like, wait a minute, you added a fellowship? Wait a minute, you added this while doing? That's what we do. There are so many parallel stories of how it looks, what it looks to be, quote, a successful physician in academics, even outside academics. And What changed? What made you get help? I'm curious to hear more.
2: I didn't at the time. And so it took me a lot longer to get through that struggle than it should have. I stopped my fellowship. And as part of my way of coping with this experience and sort of processing it myself, I wanted to Fix the problem (laughs) that I was currently experiencing, right, for other people. So rather than fixing it for myself, I went to fix it for other people. And so when I stopped my fellowship, I immediately took a role at a hospital working on the relational aspects of healthcare for other physicians in patient and clinician experience and starting the work of. Coaching and counseling other clinicians, working on patient experience programs that were physician-centric at my hospital, and diving into that, preparing a, a federal grant uh, the first year out of residency. Right, because I wanted to do this work in order to fix what I saw was wrong, and so I, I really started my career working in professional well-being while I was still struggling myself and. It was a rough first five years of a career. It's always hard to be a working physician as a parent of two young kids or of one young kid. And on top of that, I had decided that I couldn't get help because of the stigma surrounding that in my profession. If I could go back and talk to new Baby doc me, Um, right? I would have a a very stern talking to for myself about what it means to really be brave about helping yourself and others. But I came to that the hard way over the course of half a decade of experience. Now, I'm very thankful that that experience drove me to this work because it has been an immensely rewarding career to develop my skill set in. Operationally addressing professional well-being, programmatically addressing professional well-being, helping myself and others <laughs> throughout my career, and now uh, culminating in the opportunity to be the chief medical officer for the Dr. Lorna Breen-Harrows Foundation.
1: So Thankful for this share. And let me just say that physicians are the ultimate sublimators. We're really, really good at it. And it's a way to survive a system that is sadomasochistic. And I've been bringing this up in my podcast conversations You know, I have guests who are like, Risa, I'm not a masochist. No, 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 no. We don't necessarily identify as masochists, but the system is sadomasochistic. We're really good at following rules, jumping hoops, not going to the bathroom, not sleeping, not asking for anything, and just completing every exam, acing every test, and getting to where we need to go, putting more on the plate when internally there is suffering. One of the things that I'm doing work in now is health design. And you have discussed just now about ways to design programmatically, how to design application systems and workflows. And I'm wondering, there's been a lot of attention to designing the built environment, buildings for better behavioral and mental health. And I'd love to hear each of your thoughts on how we can design better buildings, better healthcare environments for the prevention of physician suicide. Corey, why don't you take a stab and then, and then Steph?
0: Sure. I'd answer that in a couple ways. First of all, you have a difference between burnout and depression. And I think it's important for the listeners to know that burnout is an occupational disorder. It is not a mental health disorder. It is a normal reaction to a stressful work environment. Depression is a clinical uh, diagnosis and it needs to be treated as such. And so... I'm going to answer that question first when it comes to burnout, then I'm going to answer it to depression because I do think we need to do both because the rates of both are unacceptable. So from a burnout perspective, when we look at the data, the number one driver of burnout of healthcare professionals continues to be too much administrative burden. It's all that time that gets between taking care of patients, the reason you went to medical school or if you're a nurse, nursing school, right? And so the design of our systems and our processes need to basically do everything that they can to eliminate the wasteful administrative burden. That can come in the design of the buildings, making it incredibly efficient to get between patients or make it so that physicians have uh, staff around them to take some of the administrative burden off. Frankly, first we focus on eliminating it, not just delegating it, but if you have to delegate, have that team and have that infrastructure. Then when it comes to the suicide prevention component, what we really need to make sure is, you know, you are talking about building design, so here I'm gonna go. Doctors, nurses, other licensed healthcare professionals in those buildings need to know what the rules are relative to if they have any barriers to mental health access. Okay, so you think about how you can do that in a building design or with signage or reminders. I think it's really important because that, as Steph said before, that's one of the three you know, components of the stigma. And we've got to make it clear that that third component of the stigma is not there anymore, which then leads me to thinking about how do you create a space where you're clearly able to take a break, you're encouraged to take a break, we are hearing very positive stories in two different domains relative to suicide prevention. One is where the workforce is trained in suicide prevention themselves so that they can recognize the symptoms, not just themselves, but in their colleagues and patients, and creating a culture and environment where they check in with each other and can have those honest conversations. We also want it to be a peer supportive kind of an environment, right? You want to be able to have daily check-ins, and someone who you can confidentially speak with to try to say, like, I'm having a hard day. Now, if somebody really needs mental health care, you got to get them to a trained mental health professional. But there's a step before that, which can be very effective, which is peer support. And this, the last point I'll make is about the mental health care. One of the stories that we also hear that's incredibly effective is opt-out scheduling of appointments for trainees, and other healthcare professionals with a mental health professional. In other words, you were talking very tactically, so schedule all of your residents, you know, someone else schedules them for appointments. And we've seen in the military, this is what they do post-deployment of soldiers, and it is incredibly effective. And so we've heard from residency coordinators and others across the country, when they do that, not only is the first visit a very high percentage, but most importantly, over 50% of ongoing treatment. So I think everything about the design of the systems and the buildings need to follow suit. One of the reasons why we've created our program called All-In Caring for Caregivers, which helps organizations start this work, is because everyone needs practical tools to do that work. And that's what our Caring for Caregivers program does, is it allows organizations to understand what those first few steps are, whether that be in systems design, buildings design, et cetera. Steph?
2: Thanks. Have you heard of HALT? Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. That's when we make bad decisions, right? When we're hungry, angry, lonely, and tired. And we know what to do about hungry and tired, right? You eat and you sleep. Unless you can't because you're because you're working through your lunch break, you know, your meals in your sleep time. And so Sustainable scheduling that allows for full stomachs and empty bladders as opposed to empty stomachs and full bladders is really important. The ability to sleep on a circadian rhythm when possible. And, you know, I'm an ear doc, so I know that's not always possible, but some semblance of rational scheduling around circadian advancement for shift workers. And then, in terms of angry and and lonely, there's really two pieces to that that can really be changed structurally. And that's making sure that healthcare workers have a voice in the design of their work, of their environment, and of their schedule, so that they are empowered to give feedback that is acted upon in the design of those structures, including clinicians and healthcare workers in the design of their work environment. And then also connecting them in peer groups to talk about the unique stressors. That they face. What I've discovered is that peer support is repeatedly shown in research and evidence is so effective because there's a twofold impact. It gives you a chance to process the traumatic things you see and participate in, really the peaks of human suffering in the world. But it also shows that you're not alone; that other folks are experiencing this and processing it along with you. So in addition to addressing HALT, my one last comment on structural improvements, you know, they call the ER the pit and they call it the pit for a reason. We don't often have windows, there's no natural light and we know that that has impact on mood. So in addition to the impact on burnout of structural scheduling, the ability to design your work environment and to have peer support, for both burnout and mental health, just adding opportunities to experience natural light for folks, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, in the Northern parts of the country where you can go in in the dark and come out in the dark for months at a time, especially in residency.
1: Yeah, NPSA is in a few days and the Dr. Lorna Breen Foundation has received much attention, has been successful, many awards and acknowledgements. There's a big one that we'd like to share with the audience, and I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us about it, Corey.
0: Sure. It is an unbelievable honor to be one of a small group receiving the Surgeon General's Medallion this year. The Surgeon General's Medallion is the highest honor he can present to a civilian. He presents it to individuals or organizations who exemplify unusual acts of compassion, innovative mental health efforts, and exceptional leadership. In advancing the well-being of their communities. And Jennifer and I both received a call from the Office of the Surgeon General with this incredible news, and it is going to be celebrated at an event at the Kennedy Center, a concert entitled Songs for Hope, on September 18th, just one day after NPSA Day at 7 p.m. at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. And we are just blown away. And and one of the things that I would I would say is or two quick things to say. One is the Surgeon General has been an incredible advocate for supporting the professional well being of healthcare workers. In right after the Lorna Breen Act was signed into law by the president, or shortly thereafter, the Surgeon General issued his advisory on burnout. So he's been an incredible voice. He's also been, uh, as you've probably seen, subsequent advisories. He's, He's talked about human connection, the importance of human connection. By the way, these two advisories are not distinct. They are talking to the same audience in many, many ways and are very wise in their solutions. But the other thing that I would say is every time we receive this recognition, it is an opportunity to elevate the voices of healthcare workers who may not feel like they are seen or heard. And so we use every one of these opportunities to pause, take it very seriously, and know who we are representing at the Dr. Lorna Breed Heroes Foundation. You know, we named this foundation after Lorna because she cared deeply about her colleagues as much so as she did about her patients. But we represent healthcare workers in this foundation. We represent you. If you're a healthcare professional and you're listening to this, we did this in her name, but this is for you. And so we are taking that and holding that very, very tightly and really cherish that opportunity to be your voice. And so every time we get this recognition, I just have to point out that this isn't for us. This is for all of you. And it gives us an opportunity in a different audience setting to highlight your issues and bring solutions to bear.
1: The Risa wrap-up. Special thanks to Steph and to Corey for joining me in conversation. I really appreciate you giving time to me again this year. Audience, some take-home points. Number one, thank goodness, laws, questionnaires, credentialing applications are changing. The language is changing to be less stigmatizing. We should be creating environments where people should get help. Physicians should be able to get help. And what I particularly liked about this conversation is the focus on health design and health design thinking. Corey and staff provided really good suggestions about how we can create better workspaces and workplaces, the built environment, hospitals. We can increase education. We can increase signage. We can create peer groups, and we can create buildings that have sunlight, that have natural light, and my current favorite word, biophilia. That's it for this week, audience. See you next time. The Visible Voices Podcast amplifies voices both known and unknown, discussing topics of healthcare, equity, and current trends. We are a production of The People's Media Network. Our team includes Dr. Giuliano DeCortu and me, Dr. Risa E. Lewis. Please find me on social media at Risa E. Lewis and through the website, thevisiblevoicespodcast.com. If you like the podcast, please rate and review us. Share the podcast with a friend today. Thank you so much for listening. And as always, to be continued.